Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your for the way you run your universe, for the truths that you've revealed to us. We thank you for the opportunity to get together and study and share. And we, we thank you for how you're leading, uh, for the unfolding of this message at this time in human history. We pray that you'll give us wisdom as we study today and that your will be done in our lives and our ministry. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Our lesson today is lesson eight in the quarterly, The Crucible with Christ, in The Crucible with Christ, and it's titled Seeing the Invisible. And the lesson asks, How can we be sure about what we do not see? How can we be sure about what we do not see? Do any of you have confidence or faith that radio waves exist? Do you see them? How can you have, how can you be sure if you can't see them? Do any of you have confidence or faith that radiation is real? Solar radiation, you might call it UV radiation, or ionizing radiation, which comes from uranium and things like that. Are you, have you seen radiation? Or have you seen the results of radiation? So what do you base your faith in these things you cannot see? What do you base it upon? The evidence of what's happened. What about our faith in God? Is there evidence for the existence of God? Amen. What evidence? What evidence for his existence? He created the world. Part one. No, he created the world as a statement. What evidence is there that he created the world? I'm waiting. <laughs> the fact that the earth is here, some would argue, is evidence of the Big Bang. Romans one, that's right. That God's divine power and, 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 and eternal divine nature and eternal power are seen in what He has made. Okay, so I'm asking you, what do you see in what He has made that gives evidence of God that actually refutes the idea that it just came about on its own? Intelligent, Intelligent design. Okay. People's changed heart. Yeah, people's changed hearts. How? People's changed hearts. See the complexity of creation. You can also see the law of giving written into the code of nature, even though it's been hijacked. It still reveals the benevolent creator always giving. There's these cycles that we, we talk about, the water cycle, the oxygen cycle, the carbon cycle. So, so first, the complexity of life. Understand that life, as we, under, as we understand life operating on this planet, there is no living organism that can exist in isolation. Every living system on earth, living organism, requires some other living organism for its sustenance. If you separate any living organism from all other living organisms on earth, they die. You ha- so the complexity, you can't have this idea that there was this one single celled organism that somehow spontaneously came about on its own and it then somehow mutated and 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 it just it's scientifically impossible for that to happen number one so the complexity the interconnectedness of these complex forms of life which were required for the sustaining the testable laws that russell was talking about built into nature law of love law of of liberty these testable laws all systems live as they give uh The Testament moral laws as well, law of liberty, how lives are transformed and changed. But to me, the, 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 the evidence that is irrefutable, even to the people who want to try to excuse away all this other stuff, 
is the coded information in the DNA and RNA of all living organisms. To have a living organism, you require physical matter, you require energy, and all life as we know it requires not just DNA molecules. That would be like letters in the alphabet. Taking letters in the alphabet and just randomly throwing them together does not give you information that you can read and you can use. You have to actually assemble the letters into words and the words into sentences and the sentences into paragraphs and the paragraphs into chapters in order for information to be useful. Okay, Information does not come randomly. And every living organism has coded information in their DNA and RNA. It is an impossibility that that comes by random forces, and the honest scientists out there acknowledge that. And, and then what they will say is, you're right, life did not start here on its own. It was seeded here by aliens somewhere else in the universe. That's what they say, uh, public statements. Okay? And I say, I have never, never spoken to them, but if I did, I would say, thank you. Welcome to Genesis 1-1. <laughs> An extraterrestrial intelligence terraformed the planet and created life. That's Genesis 1-1. God is not a terrestrial. He's not from Earth. And that's what you're teaching. That's what we're teaching. Welcome to the Bible. So... The evidence is overwhelming for an intelligence that created life on earth. Those who continue to promote the godless theories of existence, I want you to understand this very clearly, they're the ones who operate outside of objective reality, who deny evidence, who advance belief systems that are superstitious and require the suspension of reason. Very clearly. All the things they've alleged against people of faith, well, that's myth. You believe the Bible. You're not scientific. You don't have evidence. You believe it. It's all a lie. The godless theories are the ones that require suspension of reason, denial of evidence, denial of science, in order to hold those theories, because they're refuted. Just as the Scripture taught God's divine nature seen in what he has made, it's there for all who have eyes to see. It's always been there. The delusion of godless evolution, though, is so deeply, and I say it's a delusion. It's a fixed, false, a delusion by definition is a fixed, false belief. And this is a fixed, false belief, and it's so deeply embedded into the accepted orthodoxy of modern education and science that it's almost never even questioned. It's assumed. It's an assumed truth, but it's actually a lie. And it is a corrosive idea that has been corrupting our society. And what we're reaping in our world today is a direct fruit of the godless theories. All this transgender stuff, this uh, deconstructionist stuff, it's all a fruit of decoupling our thinking from objective reality. Yes? That's what I'm saying. That you need more faith of the kind that doesn't rest upon evidence. Okay, it's the faith we might call blind faith. I just believe because, because I believe. Okay, the, the true faith, though, is evidence-based faith. Our faith in God is not on blind, wishful hope. It's actually on sound evidences of reality. The people who teach this godless worldview are blind guides leading the blind who follow them, as Jesus would have described. And their, their, their positions are based on proclamations and claims that require the rejection of objective evidence. If you look at the premises of the two and what you can test scientifically, and we've talked about this before, the grand, two grand theories of origins of life, Big Bang, no intelligence, it happened all on its own, 
intelligent design creator who created life. Now, science is observing and testing reality. We We can't go back and test either one of those. We can't go back in time and observe the creation of the universe in the Big Bang or the other one. So that's untestable. But both of those theories rest on premises that are actually testable. Premises like something came from nothing. There was nothing and something came from it. Can anyone show me that? Or, 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 the, or the God, there was something, God, and something led and created something else. Oh, that actually works in how reality works. How about complexity and order come all on their own without any intelligent design or input? So somehow chaos on its own creates uh, complexity and order versus an intelligence creates complexity and order. Oh, how about this one? From non-living matter springs life spontaneously on its own. That's another premise of the godless theory. Versus, no, only living matter can lead to other living organisms. You see, if you look at the premises, every single premise of the two theories is refuted by objective science, and it requires a suspension of reason to continue to hold to a godless worldview in addition to the genetic uh, evidence I just cited. And so the people who hold, these blind guides, who are holding the reins of power in most of the Western societies that we, in fact, all of them, and the educational institutes, and the, uh, the halls of medicine, and the, and the leadership positions of most of the institutes of, of, of health that we so supposedly turn to for guidance, these are all godless-thinking people, by and large. And when you challenge their worldview, well, think, was there a time in history when there was a strong religious organization that based its belief on myth and the denial of evidence, and, 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 and people you might call reformers stood up to them with evidence and questioned some of the mythological things they were teaching, how were they met by the people in power and authority? Were they met with a positive attitude, appreciation, thankfulness, willingness to update and change, or they met with authority, power, and coercive pressure to shut them down. What happened in the whole COVID fiasco? When certain people, scientists, doctors, stood up and started questioning, asking just simply for the evidence, for the science, seeing where it would lead. Uh, what happened... To, and the people in authority, when their positions that were, were questioned because they were making declarations that were contrary to how things were working, where they said, well, yes, we want to just follow the science. We're eager to have your input. Let's look at that. Let's see where the truth actually leads. Or did they shut it down and coerce? You see the same methodologies being used. In addition to the evidence of God built into the created order, we also have Scripture, the revelation of God through his inspired writers, the life of Jesus, the prophecies uh, that, that give evidence of God's foreknowledge and control over time. We also have, as Tina said, the transformation of lives and our own personal experiences that give evidence of God. So altogether, the integrative evidence-based approach, Scripture, science, and experience woven together, we see a harmonized truth. Sunday, first paragraph says, If God really loved me, he would certainly do blank. For me. Sounds like a game show. 
vending machine. I wonder how many times that thought has flickered through our minds. We look at our circumstances and then we begin to wonder whether God really loves us because if he really did, things would be different. Have you ever thought that or have you ever known people who have expressed such ideas? What's the problem with this type of thinking? They don't want to know God. It's all about self. They don't really know God. They don't really know God. It reveals that I think you're exactly right. If they did know God and they found themselves in trying circumstance, wouldn't they say something like, I know God loves me. I know it. But I just don't understand why this is happening. He is allowing this. It doesn't make sense to me. That's how Job prayed. He did make sense to him why it was happening, but he didn't question God's love for him. He just didn't understand the reasons. That's actually legitimate. That's fair. That's a conversation that you can go to God with and say, God, I know you love me. There must be a good reason for this. I've got a finite mind. I can't see all the things you can see. I sure would like to be clued in on this if you clue me in. That's a fair prayer. You can even get hints of this type of an attitude in Jesus on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's that human aspect. He didn't ever question God's love. But there was an aspect of him, why is this happening? Like, I think he actually had, a, had an understanding, and that was just how he felt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Third paragraph, it says, in Romans 3.82, there is an important piece of logic that is extremely helpful in guarding us from becoming overwhelmed by our circumstance. If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? That's a quote from the message in in Romans 8.32. How could we possibly think that God would send Jesus to die for us and then turn mean and stingy? First off, I like the quote from the message. I thought that was well rendered. Well done. Well said. But what about the, uh, how would you answer the lesson's question? How could we possibly think that God would send Jesus to die for us and then turn mean and stingy? How could we possibly think that? Well said, Eve, because we misunderstand why he sent his son and what Jesus accomplished. As, yes, So could the law lens that we look at it through have any bearing on that fact? The Roman church became infected with a Roman view of law and taught that God's law functions like human law imposed rules requiring the rule giver to punish and enforce rule breaking. In this false model, God became the source of suffering. God became the source of inflicted death as punishment for sin upon sinners. And thus Jesus' death is presented as a means to persuade God, to appease God, to propitiate God, to influence God, to legally pay God or God's law so that the ruler won't use his power to torture and kill us. Isn't that how it's presented? Do you think I'm making this up? In other words, God's mean and stingy to begin with. So, in other words, God's mean and stingy, except he sent Jesus. Well, For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Don't forget that. Because Jesus prevailed on him. Only because Jesus prevailed on him. So, do you think I'm making this view up? I'm overstating it in any way? Well, I'm going to give you a few, uh, run through some real quick quotes across the landscape of Christianity, just to share you what, uh, because we're trying to answer the question, how could we believe Jesus came and died for us? Yet, we still see God as mean and stingy. Could it be how we explain it? So this is um, from the president of the Catholic Apologetics. Why did Christ's suffering and death, what did Christ's suffering and death actually accomplish that allowed the Father to provide the human race with salvation? 
Scripture teaches only that Christ became a propitiation, a sin offering, or a sacrifice for sins. Essentially, this means that Christ, because he was guiltless, sin-free, and in favor with God, could offer himself as a means of persuading God to relent of his angry wrath against the sins of mankind. Anger against sin shows the personal side of God, for sin is a personal offense against God. God is personally offended by sin, and thus he needs to be personally appeased in order to offer a personal forgiveness. In keeping with the divine principles, his personal nature and the magnitude of the sins of man, the only thing that God would allow to appease him was the suffering and death of the sinless representative of mankind, namely Christ. Nothing else will satisfy my anger other than you torturing and killing my son. That'll make me feel a lot more at peace. Just think about that, parents. You're in conflict with someone. You send your son as your representative, and you think, I'm going to stay mad at you. Unless you take my son and torture and kill him, then I'll be happy with you. That's what this is saying. It's totally corrupt. Now, here's one. A call to evangelical unity in Christianity today. We affirm that the atonement of Christ, by which in his obedience he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on our behalf according to God's eternal plan, is an essential part of the gospel. What's the purpose here? The Father has to have something done to him because he's not quite yet perfect. This is George Knight, the cross of Christ. Have you ever heard of, of him? Okay. Now, this is interesting. It's, it's just show you how blind people can be when they hold to the lie about God's law working as human law. Because notice the first section here. It's totally scriptural and correct. Listen. Paul always, always speaks of people being reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.20. He quotes the reference. He's exactly right. He never refers to God being reconciled to us. How much room is left in always and never? He's right. That is exactly correct. Now, notice what comes next. Very next words. In spite of that fact. What does that tell you is coming? Even though this is what the Bible teaches, we know better. And here's what he says. In spite of that fact, however, we should recognize that sin affected both sides. Humanity's rebellion and sense of guilt alienated from God while God was separated from humankind by his necessary hatred of and judgment on sin, his wrath. Christ's sacrificial death, propitiation, removed the barrier of reconciliation from God's side. If God could only be for you, if God could only get over his wrath and propitiation and be on your side, is that what the Bible teaches? If God is for you, for God was so wrathful at the world that Jesus had to come and propitiate him in order to get him to love the world. This is so contrary to scripture, so corrupt. Let me keep going. This is out of a book some of you may have heard. It's the old edition called the Seventh-day Adventist Believe 27, 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 111. It says, Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God because this sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man in that Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. What does it say the barrier is? Took away, took away the barrier. John the Baptist preaching, the Lamb of God who takes away the wrath of the Father. That's what he said, isn't it? 
What did he say? Oh, wait. You mean the Bible teaches that what separates us from God is our sin that needs to be taken away? And, 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 and the theologians are teaching it's not our sin that separates us. It's God's wrath that separates us and needs to be taken away. Notice the corruption. This is all based on human law. It's the Roman infection. Let me give you another one. This is out of Ministry Magazine. You know what Ministry Magazine is? Okay. Why did the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or a sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or a lethal injection? Did God actually execute Jesus at the cross? When you hear Jesus' personal testimony, do you say, my God, my God, why are you executing me and torturing me and killing me? Is that what you're hearing? In fact, were the Romans the one that wanted him tortured in the most cruel way? Or did Pilate actually advocate to set him free? Pilate had no agenda to kill Jesus, did he? Who was behind it? The Sabbath-keeping, Adventist, diet-conscious, sanctuary-believing Adventists of the day. That's who did it. One more. This is out of a, uh, you might have heard of this, this journal. It's called Adventist World Review. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. That's what that says. Their view, taught by the leadership, is God, in order to be just, had to kill Jesus. Why? Because it's diagnostic what law lens they operate from. When, if God's law functioned like human law, system of rules just made up, then that would be true. There would be no justice if God didn't enforce his law. This is diagnostic of the Roman infection to Christianity. All the Protestant churches reformed or came out of the Roman system, which is a hierarchical system of rules, canon law, enforcement, coercion, and so forth. And even though they've corrected some of the doctrinal misunderstandings, no system has completely rejected imperial view of God's law and come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and back to creator worship whose laws are the laws upon which reality are built. That's what we teach. Yes. Yes. Coming out of Babylon means so Babylon in Scripture was a real historic power that warred against the real historic nation of Israel. So those historical forces lived and existed. But in Scripture, they're not only historical, they have symbolic representations. The people of God or the beautiful land represent the the saints of God. Babylon represents that system that wars against the people of God throughout time. Babylon, of all the nations that warred against Israel, and Egypt warred against Israel, and the Assyrians warred against Israel, what set Babylon apart, though, was Babylon was the first nation in history that warred against Israel that comes into the Bible story arc that had a code of law, the code of Hammurabi. 
And so Babylon represents these human systems of government and human systems of law which stand in contradiction and opposition to God's design law system. Satan is the one who wants to rise up and rule over, it says in Isaiah 14. Christ, who had equality with God, did not think it was something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the form of a cross, sacrificing himself for the uplifting of the masses. Human law systems and human government systems always have elites making rules to exploit and dominate the masses for the benefit of the elites. And all all kingdoms of this earth are Satan's, according to, to, to the scripture. And Jesus, God, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. Why? It operates on a different system of laws. What's happened to Christianity is Christianity has drunk the wine, the idea that God's law functions like human law, and therefore teaches that God's government is nothing different functionally than a Roman Caesar running Rome. He just has more power. That's all. Yes. Growing up, you three generation Adventist is that when it said come out of Babylon, you got to come out of the Sunday keeping churches and come to the Sabbath. Yes. Uh, so she said, "What for those who didn't hear, what I understood growing up through generations of Adventists meant coming out of Babylon meant coming out of Sunday keeping churches. Why? Why were you taught that?" Because that's what the church taught. Because that's what the church taught. Meaning. Well, my teacher, when I was in first grade, second grade, they're all the way through, they taught us that 3 plus 3 is 11. I've always believed 3 plus 3 because my teachers always taught me that. So why do you believe? Because that's what I was taught. Okay, you were taught that. Is it true? Now, no, it's not true. So historically speaking, the Bible describes the Sabbath as a sign of God. It says it in multiple places. The Sabbath is a sign that I am the one who makes you Holy. Okay. Does it say the Sabbath is a sign that I am the one who will declare you to be holy even though you remain unholy? That's penal substitution theology. That's the Roman system that you have some legal accounting mechanism where you're declared to be in one condition when you actually are still in another condition. That is not what the Sabbath is a sign of, nor the kingdom of God. The Sabbath is a sign of a creator who builds reality, whose laws are the laws that reality operate upon, and sin takes us out of harmony with him and his laws. We are dead in trespass and sin. We have a condition that, if not resolved in having the law written in the heart and mind, will result in our ruin and death. And so God sent Christ to pick up humanity broken and damaged by Adam. He becomes the second Adam. And in the person of Christ, the living law of God is restored in the species human. And he becomes the vine and we are the branches. As the Holy Spirit, we connect in faith. Everything Christ achieved reproduces in us. We get new hearts and right spirits. We're transformed to be Christ-like. We're healed. We're renewed. We become holy. And the Sabbath is a sign. Why? How did the Sabbath become a day set apart? By creation. It is an evidence of a creator God whose laws are the laws of reality work upon. How did Sunday become a day set apart? By legislation. And thus is a sign of an imperial system, a rule over system. Okay, so it ultimately doesn't matter what day you go to church on. I'm going to make this very clear. It matters what law you operate from in how you treat others, which law you operate. Do you operate on law of love, self-sacrificial love, truth, presented love, leaving other people free? Or will you use power to coerce the consciences of other people to do what you think they need to do? During the whole COVID crisis, we saw these two things at war in society. We saw a group of people who were willing to present truth and love and persuade and leave people free. 
And we saw another group of people who were willing to use the power, any power they could get a hold of, the power of the state, the power of their employer, employment, the power of uh, admittance to schools and institutions, any type of coercive power they could bring to bear. And if you don't behave and, and, and do what we say, even though it's a violation of your conscience, we will coerce you, we'll punish you in some way. That is not godly. That is not how the kingdom of God works. So Babylon, the system of made-up rules and coercive enforcement. The, the holy land or the people of God are those who worship the creator and present truth and love and leave others free. Self-sacrificial love. This is the great, uh, and, and so those two days are symbolic of two systems and two types of law. It really doesn't matter which day you go to church on, in my view, as long as you are actually living the law of God. You can go to church on Wednesday night prayer meeting and you won't have, nowhere does it say you should not attend church on Sunday. It doesn't say it anywhere, does it? And in fact, in the Jewish system, how many days a week did they bring sacrifices to temple? Seven days a week, they were coming to temple for worship services. It was never about attendance at worship service. It was about living what the day represents, and the Sabbath is a gift to us to teach us and provide us something that we need, evidence of how God operates. Is the Sabbath law on the church on Sunday? If it's in your, the true understanding of... The way God works, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what rules did he attach to it? In it thou shalt not do any work. And, and what rules did he attach to it? Did he tell you that if you're a pastor, that on the Sabbath um, you shouldn't preach and you shouldn't uh, uh, do any activities because it, it, that would be work. That's your employment. So you shouldn't preach on Sabbath. That, that would be working. Which days do, do Adventist pastors work the hardest? But but that would be a violation of the Sabbath then, wouldn't it? Because they're, they're breaking the law. Because they're not supposed to work. And they're being paid for it. No, the point of what, about the Sabbath is God did not give any rules with it. He left it completely up to you to decide in your relation with him what is honoring God in the Sabbath and what is not. What happened afterwards, they didn't like it. They wanted to run it like a human law system. They came up with 660 different forms of work that you can't do on the Sabbath. And our church did the same thing, so, right? Yeah. I, I, they didn't give a 660 rule list. <laughs> but they came up with the same function. But they came up with the same type of operation. And most people have experienced the Sabbath as the most restrictive and abusive day of the week, not the day of liberty, not the day of freedom. It should be the freest day, the day you have the most freedom to do whatever your heart desires. You don't have to be burdened with work. You don't have to be burdened with schools. You don't have to be burdened with house chores. You are set free every week to experience God in the liberty of your relationship with him. And you say whatever your heart desires, that's the point. Because God knows your heart. He knows why you do what you do. Yep. And if your heart is renewed, you will never desire anything that is, uh, is, is, that is right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So do you see the imposed law lie woven through all these statements? And can you see why the idea of God's law functioning like a human ball puts God in the role of executioner and how we could see Christ died for us, but yet still think God is mean and stingy? Can you see how that both are true? Yes, another hand. One of those references that you gave, that you read, yeah. 
understands what sin is, or they wouldn't have worried them that way. That's right, because they all have a premise that God's law works like human law, and they think sin is a legal problem. It is so, and, and I will tell you, none of these people will actually debate or discuss this with me. Because it's, it's only seconds and they're exposed as frauds. Only seconds. So in Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, after they sinned and ate the fruit, were they still holy, loyal, faithful, righteous individuals who simply were now in legal trouble with God? Or did they actually change themselves in some way? They didn't have a legal problem. They had a lethal problem. They were dead in trespassing. They were out of harmony with the very protocols of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, did... I don't think sin is offensive to God the way that we explain it. It's offensive to God in the same way that any terminal sickness, cancer, or, or anything else is offensive to a doctor. No doctor wants to see anybody they love uh, being ravaged by a disease. They hate the disease. It's, it's offensive to see it, but they, but they don't hate the patient. They present it like God is mad at you for sin. That's because, again, all of that is diagnostic. It's diagnostic of the law lens they look through. It, it, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. So how could they think that God is that way, but yet they believe that Jesus was kind and loving and all that? because they have a psychological defense mechanism called denial at work. I find it so irritating that this publication would ask us how could we possibly think that God would send Jesus and we think he's mean and stingy because this publication teaches us that on a regular basis. That's how we could think that. So, yes, you're exactly right. So let's move on and ask about the wrath of God. And this is out of Romans 1, 18 through 32, quoting out of the NIV. I'm going to read this to you, but listen. Listen to what Paul describes. Listen to what he's dealing with in his day. When he describes this, he's saying, is now today actively in my lifetime right now being revealed. And notice what he says happens. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed. Right now, active present tense. From heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Think about, and I want you, because I'm going to come right back to you in a moment, I want you to tell me where you see this happening in our world right now today. Okay? Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Uh, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, the wrath of God is being real. Therefore, God takes an action. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created be- things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations for women and were aflame with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with their other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 
Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Now, are you seeing any of this happening in our world today? This passage is, let me be very clear. This passage is not talking about biological conditions that have occurred because sin is in the world. It's not talking about that. Jesus answered that question when the disciples said, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Neither. Paul says later in Romans 8, 22, all nature groans under the weight of sin. So this is not talking about people that have what are called intersex conditions biologically. Uh, Kleinfelter's syndrome, uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome, hermaphrodites. It's not talking about that at all. What it is talking about, and it says it very clearly, is people who exchange and abandon the natural for the unnatural. In other words, these are people who start out life with godly, heterosexual, natural desires and through rejection of God and rejection of truth and false worship and various forms of personal perversity, they inflame themselves with desires they did not naturally have from birth. That's what this is talking about. And we need to make that distinction because what happens is you get in false arguments and false Focus and people will teach the Bible condemns these poor folks born with a condition they didn't choose. No, it doesn't. Silent on those people. This is talking about people who had natural desires and they rejected the truth about God, went down destructive pathways, pornography and other things, and inflamed themselves. Remember, this this is in the context of false worship. And what kind of worship did they have in Rome? Various fertility cults. It'd be analogous to pornography today. And the wrath of God is exactly what it has always been. And what Paul says here, if you reject the healthy and the laws of health and engage in unhealthy living outside of the laws of health, you will reap in your body the health-destroying consequences. You will reap in your mind the health. If you have a, a spouse and you cheat on your spouse, you will reap in your character the character of a cheat. You will have anxiety. You will have fear. You will have guilt. You will have shame. And if you avoid that simply by denial and externalization and blame, you warp your reason and you harden your heart. You can't avoid these things. This is what happens. And God, though he is patient, though he is gracious, though he brings the Holy Spirit to bring truth, if you insist on going your own way, what does God eventually do? He says it three times. He gives you up. He turns you over. So from the hard sayings of the Bible published by InterVarsity Press, commenting specifically on this passage of Romans we just read, this is what this Bible commentary says. And this stands in contradistinction to the imposed law view. In the imposed law view, we just read from all the theologians that we just read, God's wrath is God actively using his power to inflict punishment and harm on people for rule breaking. And God has to be uh, propitiated with a payment of a, of a blood sacrifice for him not to be wrathful. Notice what the, what the hard sayings of the Bible describes God's wrath to be, commenting specifically on the passage in Romans. 
In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of the created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for the creation and substituting our own intention, we cause our own disintegration. The human condition which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through 32, which is what we just read, is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the word God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will built into the created order is violated. Since the created order has its origins in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversions of God-intended sexuality, and relational moral brokenness. The expression God gave them over or handed them over, which appears three times in this passage, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. Brilliant, beautiful, biblical, design law reality, what Scripture teaches. And this Babylonian and Roman infection of Christianity has to be purged. The final message of mercy to go to the world is the truth of God's character of law, and we end up ultimately back in the great controversy on the same main point it began in heaven over, which is a question of God's law. Lucifer did not allege God was powerless. He alleged he wasn't good. And you can look right into the temptations of Eden. Did God say in the day you eat, you will die? Oh, no, you won't. There is no reality built order to things that will result in your disintegration and death. I'm not saying God doesn't have the power to kill you. Of course he could do that. But you know how good God is. He wouldn't do that to you. There's no actual harm in eating this fruit. In fact, it'll ennoble you. He's trying to keep something good from you. It was a real attack on how God operates. Yes, a couple of comments, questions, yes. So that maybe makes me think of the so-called unpardonable sin, where you do something so bad that God can't forgive you for that, but in reality, His grace is sufficient for all, and we have our own choice. We choose not to follow His ways. So then that punishment comes upon us because of what we've done. So when we think about things like pardon and forgiveness, those words, immediately in your mind, two boxes, and process those words through human law and design law. Under a human law model, pardon and forgiveness is something legal that a a, a ruling judge or a magistrate grants if the conditions are met. Under the design law model, what does it mean? First off, is is there any being in history that God retains an unforgiving attitude towards, or is God's heart forgiveness toward all, even Satan? 
So God personally forgives everyone. See, the problem with our sin condition was never getting forgiveness from God. That was never the problem. What was the problem? Accepting part of it. Yes, that's right. But even accepting the forgiveness that's extended, does that fix our problem? We need a new nature. We need a remedy. We need a cure. We need something that fixes us. We need something that takes the the law of sin and death that is operational in our characters and purges it and restores in us, write my law in your heart and mind, the law of life. The law of the Lord is is perfect, reviving or bringing life to the soul. We need that life-giving law of God, principles of God restored within us. We couldn't do it. So Christ came, took up the condition, purged the infection at the cross, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. The basis of death is the, is the law of sin and death, which is the carnal drive, fear and selfishness. Christ was tempted in all ways, just like we are. And he overcame through love and trust. He sacrificed himself freely. Love purged fear and selfishness. And he rose in a new humanity, cleansed from the infection that Adam gave us. Yes, a hand somewhere. Is there a difference between sin and sons? Yes. So in the Greek, uh, the Bible, the word that is translated sins is the same word that's translated sin. And so he died for our sins is how it's most commonly translated because people have the imposed law view and they think, oh, the sins are all the deeds that you do and therefore all the deeds have to have their proper accounting and registry and the proper ledger and they have to have the proper payment made. And so there, so it's it's always... but. If he died for our sin, then that leads us down a path of he died for our sin condition. The condition of sinfulness, that's a different way of understanding. That's the design law way. So, so in the Greek, it's the same word, but it's, it can be translated either way. One of the greatest achievements is getting people to think that there's nothing inherently wrong with sin itself. That's exactly right. And that's what the theologians teach. Sin isn't the problem. God's wrath and anger towards sin is the problem. Yes. That's what broke his father, Jesus' heart because he kept trying to reveal his father and they couldn't get it. That's right. That's right. And they hated what they saw. The same thing happened to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, according to Ella White, in 1888. In 1888, a precious message, the same message we're teaching, came to the church, to Jones and Wagner, and the leadership hated it and shut it down and have been working against it since, and they still work against it. And you, And if you want evidence of that, just look at what happened during COVID. Did the organized church stand up for liberty of conscience? No. Or did they collude with the state to coerce their own members and their own students and their own employees? Okay? Very clear. I will tell you, you know, I'm going to Liberty University. I'm going to be the chair of Department of Psychiatry. The question I asked them as they recruited and interviewed me, during COVID, did you mandate your employees or students either vax or wear masks? They did not. They left them free. Understand the implications of that. Did the Jews crucify Christ and want him down by sunset because Christ was worshiping on Sunday? No. Is that why? Did they have the wrong day of the week? Were they, were they because they were keeping the Sabbath, uh, did they receive the seal of God at that moment? We, we got him down so we won't work on Sabbath. We're being sealed of the Lord right now. <laughs> No, no, get your mind around this. This is all imperial law think. It's all corrupt. Monday's lesson quotes John 14, 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's Jesus. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Do you all believe this to be true? 
If you pray, and at the end of your prayer, as the lesson points out, lesson points this out, we often pray, and because of this promise, we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name. That's because of this promise, the lesson points it out, and we do. So if you pray to win the next lottery and pray, in Jesus' name, help me win the next lottery, will Jesus do that and you'll get the lottery, you'll get the winner? So will Jesus do, as a, as a text, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it? His name is his character. Mm-hmm. Okay. Asking in the so, so, so this is a great point that Tina points out. See, you, you can read this verse and misunderstand it completely. Many people, under the rules-oriented approach, well, in his name means by citing the moniker at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name. But it didn't work, and now we know why. Well, he never went by the name of Jesus. He went by the name of Yahshua. So you have to say, in Yahshua's name. And if you say, in Yahshua's name, then it works. You haven't got your incantation right. (laughs) And many people approach prayer like a magical incantation. If I structure it right and say the right words, I get the magical outcome. God becomes some energy force that I can manipulate through my proper incantation. That is not prayer. In Jesus' name actually means, name in the Bible means character. So praying in Jesus' name means that you're praying with a character that is like Christ. That's what it means. And when you pray with this character, then you will be asking for God's, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And can you be sure that if you ask God to do his will on earth, that God will do his will on earth? This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. According to his will. 1 John 5. Boy, there's so much I wanted to get to. I'm going to have to skip because we're running out of time. I'm going to skip much of the discussion in the lesson on Monday about, uh, let's see here, about um, uh, evidences of Scripture that uh, God answers our prayer, the Daniel chapter 10 experiences when Gabriel's dispatched and so forth, and that's all in the notes. Uh, Tuesday's lesson, it talks about, in the first paragraph, it says, the resurrection addresses the problem of human powerlessness. When we think about life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we often think about how the death of Jesus was the event that made us legally right with God. And of course, that is true. That's what the lesson says. I'll have to stop right there. First off, it's absolutely true that we as humans are powerless over death. We do not have the power of life and death. We do not hold the keys to the grave. Okay, so we, and when we all face it, we cannot speak things into existence. We are not the source of life. We cannot cure the sin problem. Life originates in God and is sustained by God and God alone. But what about this idea that the death of Christ made us legally right with God? Well, what does that reveal? The statement. Does it tell you a law lens they're understanding the problem through? Okay. There was, there was never, I'm going to just tell you, there was never a legal problem. There was an actual condition of being brought. So again, if you ever have an opportunity to discuss with people, hold this view, ask some basic questions. When Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed? He did not. Did God's law get changed? Did something about Adam and Eve change? 
then the plan of salvation is it to do something to God who is still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he hasn't changed. He's perfect in all his ways. No, it can't be that. Is, is it to do something to God's law? God's law, that the sin revealed there was an, an editor's note, error in one of the, we have to edit and fix one of the laws. Is, is that the problem? No, the law's perfect. There's nothing to be done, be done to the law. It's perfect. So if there's a problem, and it's not in God, and it's not in God's law, where is it? It's in, it's in man. So where does the solution have to be operational? Where does it have to make an, a change, an effect? And that's the whole scripture. All the metaphors of scripture. Look at the metaphors of scripture and tell me if you see legal things going on. Circumcision the heart by the spirit. Remove the heart of stone. Put in a heart of flesh. Uh, write the law on the heart and mind. Re, uh, rebirth. Renewal, dying to the old life, rising to the new life, having the mind of Christ. The old is gone, the new is come. Remo- yeah, all these metaphors, there's, there's more. Do any of these things sound legal to you? Even the one that mentioned law, write the law on your heart and mind, is that actually describing a legal process? Or a renewal, a transformation process? If you, if you took the word law out and said, write the operating system on your heart and mind. That's really what we're talking about, the methods and modes of which God's kingdom operates. Some might immediately protest, go, whoa, 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 hold on, though. You're forgetting Zechariah and the high priest standing before the Lord, and the devil is there accusing, the accuser of the brethren is accusing. You know the story? And it's commonly used as a courtroom scene. Go back and read the story and actually take off your biased and post-human law lens and courtroom assumptions and simply read what transpires in that story. And what transpires in that story is what? I remove your dirty clothes. I put on clean clothes. See, I have taken away your sin. There's nothing legal going on. The accuser is trying to make it legal, trying to point out a legal problem, and the Lord rebukes him. And heals him. Is he not a branch plucked from the fire? He was in the fire of sin. He was being destroyed. But I've taken him from that, and I have removed all the filthiness and brokenness and dirtiness, and I've healed and cleansed and renewed him. This is not legal. It's regenerational. It's retransformational. The entire legal theory of salvation is Satan's view of the plan to corrupt our minds, to distrust God, and teach a theology that's hierarchical and puts a division in the Godhead where we have God, who is the authoritarian judge, needing another member of the Godhead, and in some versions, Mary and all the saints, to really work on him to get him not to hurt you. Questions about any of that? It's not Jesus putting his clean clothes over somebody who's not converted. That's right. Nope. The, 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 the covering of the righteousness, rightly understood, is our thoughts are brought into unity of his thoughts. Our will becomes united with his will. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the world righteous. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. That's, that's the transformational part. Another, another way to say it. Last paragraph, we'll, I think we'll have to close on this. But Paul doesn't stop there. The resurrection didn't simply give Jesus any sort of power. It gave him the power to rule and provide every possible thing his people could ever need for all eternity. It gave him the power to rule and the resurrection gave him the power to rule and provide everything. Thank you. 
Yes, that's my question. Didn't Jesus have the power to rule and provide everything we needed before the resurrection? Didn't Jesus have the right to rule heaven before the resurrection? Wasn't that Lucifer's allegation and jealousy of Christ because Christ was the right ruler? Hmm. So I would suggest Hebrews 5, 8, 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he had suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I would say he's always had the right to rule. He's always had the power to rule. In fact, he's always been the ruler. But our salvation required more than his power. It required, once we were in sin, a revelation of the truth to destroy the lies and win a trust. And it, it required this new nature once he was made perfect. He was always sinless. Bible perfection is mature character. We could not mature a godly, righteous, sinless character. All of us were infected, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So Christ came and partook of humanity and carried it to the cross, destroyed the infection of the carnal drives, and restored God's perfection in humanity, and thus he became the source of salvation. So he provided that. So it's true, we couldn't be saved without his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. But it's not because it gave him power. It gave him a remedy. It gave him a cure. It gave him the solution to the problem that had to be wrought out in a, in a humanity that he did for us. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for you, Father, that Jesus has revealed you so perfectly to us that we, we don't live in fear. We live in awe and admiration, and we are just humbled at how incredible you are, that even though you are infinite in power, you are also infinite in goodness and love and mercy and grace and patience and, and that you have done everything for our good and welfare and eternal salvation. And we ask now that your spirit will, will take the achievements of Christ, reproduce it in us so that we can go forward as your living lights in this dark world to prepare the world for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.